Content warning, this episode contains a short discussion of the death of a child. Spoiler alert for The Turn of the Screw. If you have not read this book and don't want it spoiled, stop the podcast here, read the book, then come right back and pick up the pod right now. Here we go. His old friend, the youngest of several daughters of a poor country parson, had, at the age of 20, on taking service for the first time in the schoolroom, come up to London in trepidation to answer in person an advertisement that had already placed her in brief correspondence with the advertiser. This person proved, on her presenting herself, for judgment at a house in Harley Street that impressed her as vast and imposing. This prospective patron proved a gentleman, a bachelor in the prime of life, such a figure as had never risen, save in a dream or an old novel, before a fluttered, anxious girl out of a Hampshire vicarage. He had for his own town residence a big house filled with the spoils of travel and the trophies of the chase, but it was to his country home, an old family place in Essex, that he wished her to immediately proceed. Welcome to Haunted Spouse, a haunted house podcast. I'm your ghost host, Ben Casey, and this is my haunted spouse and co-host, Laura. Hello. Tonight on Haunted Spouse, we'll be talking about the turn of the screw. I was initially inspired to look at the turn of the screw when I learned it was the inspiration for season two of Netflix, The Haunting of Hill House, although this season is The Haunting of Bly Manor. The Turn of the Screw is a horror novella originally published in serial format in an American general interest magazine. Henry James, you may have heard of him, was an influential writer of several classic works of English fiction, including The Portrait of a Lady and, of course, The Turn of the Screw. He was an American-British author, and his writings often contrasted Old World and New World characteristics. Specifically, The old world tended to be connected with corruption and the allure of beauty, while the new world featured the supposed virtues of the new American society, valuing personal freedom, directness, and higher moral character. So let's start off with a general introduction to the characters and the premise of the story. The Turn of the Screw is a story framed within a greater story, although we never return to that initial story at the end. The frame story is a nameless narrator who is speaking in the first person, sharing a story that he heard from a friend with a group that is gathered for Christmas Eve telling spooky stories. The narrator claims that their friend learned of the story from his sister's governess, so this claims to be a true story. And so the governess is the main character of the story and also hand-wrote the story that is being read at this Christmas party. The story goes that she has been hired to look after two young orphans in their isolated country home, Bly Manor. Their uncle, who hired her, is responsible for them but lives elsewhere and has left her instructions that she should not contact him under any circumstances. <laughs> the next character we're introduced to is Ms. Gross. Uh, she is the maid slash housekeeper, I think. We don't learn a whole lot about her, but we know that she um, cannot read, and I think that speaks to her station at this time. And then the first of the two children we meet is Flora. She's the younger child, and she's introduced, I believe, by giving the governess her own young child version of a tour of the house. A little bit later, we meet Miles, who is the older child. He has been away at school, but the governess soon learns that he has actually just been expelled. The letter from the school does not explain why he's been expelled, just that he should not return. Very mysterious. Both the governess and Ms. Groves are captivated by both children's beauty and innocence. They are unnaturally well-behaved. And now a little on the house itself. 
Unlike a lot of other stories with haunted houses, we don't get a very specific description of the house. We get an overall impression that it is gigantic and grand and beautiful and much nicer than anything that the governess is used to, but not a whole lot of detail. I suppose I had expected, or had dreaded, something so melancholy that what greeted me was a good surprise. I remember as a most pleasant impression the broad clear front, its open windows and fresh curtains, and the pair of maids looking out. I remember the lawn and the bright flowers and the crunch of my wheels on the gravel and the clustered treetops over which the rooks circled and cawed in the golden sky. The scene had a greatness that made it a different affair from my own scant home, and there immediately appeared at the door, with a little girl in her hand, a civil person who dropped me as decent a curtsy as if I had been the mistress or a distinguished visitor. So stylistically, this book feels very Victorian. It very much beats around the bush about things, sometimes I think because he wants you to not quite be sure what's happening, other times possibly because Victorians wouldn't have addressed certain topics directly or it wouldn't have been inappropriate, which kind of leads to the experience of reading this. It really pulls you around in circles sometimes. The phrase beating around the bush comes to mind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's a lot of dialogue that is written in such a style that the characters are clearly think they're on the same page about something but they keep speaking in fragments of sentences which becomes very frustrating to the reader because there's so much in between the lines and maybe frustrating isn't the right word because i i i think that's a really interesting stylistic choice and i definitely see why that would have been chosen for a book known for its ambiguity But as I'm looking through this, kind of looking for quote-unquote proof or a way to really pin down or describe what this haunting is, that is not something that is made available in the text. Yeah, I, I found it difficult to be scared or spooked when so often I'm finding myself for a side's deep in someone's thought pattern where it's like instead of it being about the haunt we get an aside and an aside and an aside and then we have to finish all those okay now we finished the thought and maybe that's supposed to also give an impression of how her mind is working she's having she's overwhelmed and she's having all of these partial incompleted thoughts one interrupting another because she is experiencing such stress and anxiety. That could very well be. Whether I feel like that was effective for me now as a modern reader, maybe not as much. Speaking for myself personally, I'm sure that there are people for whom that's effective, and I'm sure that it was different for the audience of the time as well. In some ways, I'm kind of excited that we didn't get what we thought we were going to get from this book, because we're going to be hitting it for so many different iterations and because it's one of the most adapted works. Hmm. So there's lots of movies and then, of course, the Netflix series that we're going to be delving into later this season, if all goes as planned. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm really excited to see if our impressions change based on seeing these adaptations, especially those that were targeted more in our... Like modern day, I don't know. Yeah, targeted at a more modern audience. Yeah. Because, well, and I think there were certain things where I didn't really pick up on until I read the spark notes and it was like, oh, what they mean is this. This is just Victorians wouldn't have said this, but this is what is meant by this paragraph Mm -hmm. of text. And the overarching thing where he does want you to decide for yourself for better or worse like he wants to leave it up to you and how you feel about it and i'm sure we'll get into that once we start talking more about 
the actual hauntings. Yes. So on that note, let's step through each of the haunting situations that happens, and then we will dive into our discussion. Let's go. So the first haunting is the governess sees a man appear on a couple different occasions. At first, he doesn't really do much. It's mostly just intense staring. But this is, I think, particularly creepy because it's really just her and the household staff and these children on this country estate. There's not really supposed to be anyone else there. So she's quite surprised to see this man. Eventually, she talks to Ms. Gross about it, and they are able to identify that the man she has seen is Peter Quint, a former valet who is actually deceased. One night, she wakes up and gets out of her bed to follow the apparition of Peter Quint. When she returns to her quarters, she finds that Flora is missing from her bed, but finds her hiding behind the window blind. Meanwhile, the governess has also been trying to get information from Mrs. Gross about Miles's past misbehavior to try and understand why he has been expelled. At one point, she wakes up in the night to find Flora looking out the window at Miles, who is out on the lawn. Miles claims that he wanted to show the governess that he could be bad. Later on, the governess sees the ghost of her predecessor, Miss Jessel. So this was the former governess. Miss Jessel died shortly after resigning her post at Bly. The governess learns that Miss Jessel and Peter Quint had an affair, which would have been improper or even immoral at that time due to their separate positions in society. She also learns that Miles spent a lot of time with Peter Quint and Flora spent a lot of time with Miss Jessel, to a point that might have been seen as improper. Ms. Gross says that Quint was, quote, too free with Miles. At this point, the governess is waffling about what she should do as she tries to unravel the mystery. Miles says he wants to go back to school and says he will make his uncle come to Bly to figure things out. Soon after, the governess sees Miss Jessel sitting at a table in the schoolroom. She screams at Miss Jessel, and Miss Jessel disappears. The governess finally decides to write to the children's uncle, despite his order not to contact him. The next day, the governess realizes Flora is missing. She and Mrs. Gross look for her by the lake. Miss Jessel appears to the governess, but Flora and Mrs. Gross say they can't see her. Flora rejects the governess and says she is cruel. The following day, Ms. Gross tells the governess that Flora is sick. They agree that Ms. Gross will go to the children's uncle with Flora, while the governess stays behind at Bly with Miles. The governess learns that her letter was never sent to her employer because it went missing. After Flora and Mrs. Gross leave, Miles confesses that he took the letter. The governess sees the apparition of Quint outside the window. Miles looks out the window, cries out, and then dies in the governess's arms. So what were your overall impressions of this book? Henry James loves commas, semicolons, parentheses, M dashes, you name it. Anything that lets him put a sentence in another sentence, he will use it. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. Um, I was, I agree. I was struck by the use of punctuation in order to extend thoughts. Yes. And I'm honestly feeling kind of attacked right now because I think that's the way I speak. But um. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I will say it certainly captures a certain way of speaking in a lot of instances. But who oh boy. There were times when you could tell he knew he'd already used commas to set off this portion that he was in. So he had to switch and use parentheses this time so he could put another side thought inside this initial side thought. And that's how I used to write papers in high school. (laughs) (laughs) And then when you think he's done, you get a semicolon and you have to start over with a new sentence that flows immediately from the last. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think also it's a little bit more challenging for the modern reader because so much of the content is written in between the lines. There's lots of implication. Yeah. 
you have to read what's being implied rather than just being able to take it directly on face value. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like sometimes the characters don't even finish their own sentences or the other character will kind of have to finish the sentence for them. Yeah. And there's a lot of the pronoun game. Yeah. (laughs) Where they will say, she in all caps, and both characters will know who they're talking about. And the reader's able to figure out because there are like a total of six characters in this book, I think, (laughs) maybe five. So uh, by process of elimination, you could kind of figure it out, but... (laughs) I think there might have even been some instances where a character uses a pronoun and the other character thinks someone else first, too, even. I feel like one time maybe the governess says he, Mrs. Gross, thinks that she's talking about Miles, I think, but she's actually talking about Quint. Yeah. So everyone's confused (laughs) in this book. You know, I thought that moment might have been to highlight that they think they're on the same page, but they're not. Mm. When you say he without specifying, you would think of the child who is physically present versus the ghost of a dead valet. (laughs) Yeah. So I think it also kind of highlights where the governess is starting to be a little less in touch with reality. It sort of alienates her. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to an unreliable narrator's story, which I'm pretty sure is what we're getting at here, I think it really highlights that her sense of reality is potentially different than most people's would be. An unreliable narrator is a device that's used in a lot of literature that I think is really fun, where the narrator is, quote, unreliable because we learn that what they may be telling to us, the reader, may not be accurate to the reality of the situation. So oftentimes this is a narrator who is lying because they have a certain motivation to do so, or has some kind of mental illness, or is there another reason someone might? Sometimes it's even just they're not necessarily being malicious or they're not necessarily ill. They're just perceiving things in a different way than we might expect, and so we're seeing things from their perspective and so it leaves out parts of the story so they may not necessarily be lying or changing the truth but they leave out very important details because it fits the narrative in their own head i mean when you think about it if your narrator is human they are unreliable (laughs) yeah because we all have different psychological phenomena going on and We all have different reasons to see things in different ways. Yeah. So even that water can get kind of muddy as well. Yeah. Yeah, it gets a little little hazy. The tricky part about unreliable narrators is that the author needs to either make it clear or raise enough ambiguity for you to realize that the narrator is unreliable without the narrator out and sharing that information with you. Mm. You know, actually, I think it's kind of interesting that we're so frustrated by... Would you? I mean, would you say frustrated? Yeah, I okay. would say that's a fair <laughs> assessment. I think it's interesting that we're so frustrated by this, but at the same time, I like an unreliable narrator. I think that's fun. I'm into it. Um, what's yes. your feelings? Oh, yeah. I, I love an unreliable narrator. What was... Oh, well, even just recently reading Passing. Shout out to a, another older book. Wondering after the fact, like, was she reliable? Because she seemed reliable at the start. But mm-hmm. then, like, by the end, you're wondering, well, was she that reliable? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and speaking yeah. of ambiguous endings, too. And speaking of ambiguous endings. Yeah. I'm going to make a generalization here. <laughs> I think that... There's kind of the more classic version of the unreliable narrator, which is that it's a device used in the story. Mm. And I think that might be where the turn of the screw falls. And then I think more recently, as we've started to realize that two people might see the same situation differently, that in more modern fiction, that can be used a little less clearly. 
or it becomes interwoven into the narrative. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point where it becomes almost becomes a little more assumed in more modern works. We all go in under this understanding that when there's a human narrator that they are subject to human uh bias bias and fallacies and fallacies yeah and to some extent even when there maybe wasn't an intentional unreliable narrator sometimes it can be interesting to approach a work from the perspective of but can we trust this narrator mm-hmm. yeah maybe the author didn't intend them to not be trustworthy but how does this story shake out if we kind of interrogate the narrator a little bit yeah yeah <laughs> Unreliable narrators leave you with a lot to think about afterward, especially when you don't realize that they're unreliable until later on, because it reframes the whole story sometimes. Yeah, I. that's one of the things, if done well, that I really love is when you as a reader go through this process of realizing that the narrator that you've been trusting might not be reliable Mm-hmm. And that's especially potent in haunted house stories, because when we are hearing something from the perspective of the narrator and they go into the haunted house, now it starts raising questions of, at what point did they become unreliable? Did the house make them unreliable? Were they already a little unreliable going in? And also, if you were in the house, would you be equally unreliable or would you see things in the same way that this character is seeing them? And if so, does that make the character then unreliable or is that just a feature of being in the house? Mm. And if that's their reality, then is that reality? Yeah. One of the things also with haunted houses and unreliable narrators and what could be the case with The Turn of the Screw is you also come up with the questions of, okay, they are an unreliable narrator. They don't necessarily seem to have a perfect perception of reality. But does that mean that the things they're seeing aren't happening? Or does that mean that they're being targeted because they are a person who is seen as unreliable? And so there's always that extra bit of like, well, I don't really trust this person, but maybe that's why they're the ones being haunted because we won't trust them when they tell us what's happening. Yeah, I think we see that time and time again in a lot of haunted house stories. And that also links in, I think, with why the protagonist for whom most of the hauntings happen is so frequently a young woman. Mm. Because historically, a young woman is someone that society claims to care about and wants to take care of, but also is least likely to believe. Yeah. I mean, right up there with children in these types of stories, too, because society in these stories often treat them like children in the sense of protecting and also not necessarily believing. Yeah. And in this culture, we're also specifically talking about white people. Yeah. We should probably make that commentary (laughs) as well. What was creepy about this, and I'm interested to see if this is what comes up in the adaptations, is there's definitely a juxtaposition between this idyllic country estate with these basically perfect children (laughs) and this beautiful house and sunshine and nature with this hidden side juxtaposed with it. For one thing, I think this may be a contributor, if not the originator of the creepy children trope. Yeah. Part of what works about that trope is the fact that we ascribe all positive attributes pretty much to children. (laughs) And then for them to be creepy or dangerous in some way makes it even worse, I guess. Yeah. So I could certainly see in film an ambiance that is creepy because it is so quiet because it is so peaceful everything is so perfect so that creates the perfect backdrop for 
something scary or improper to seem even more out of place. I mean, Midsommar. Yes. It's a beautiful, gorgeous, idyllic design and backdrop that makes it all the more horrific once things start happening. Exactly. And that's a little bit, yeah, of kind of what we see here. Beautiful house, perfect children, although as it goes on, seemingly too perfect. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's something that I enjoy about haunted houses is the juxtaposition between so much richness and then it being so rotten Mm. underneath. And you want to know why? Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely think that if season two of The Haunting of Hill House with Bly Manor, if that's anything like season one, I think there's going to be some very good use of silence Mm. to build suspense and to build general creepiness. Absolutely. I'm really interested to see what they do with this story, especially because since it leaves so much up to the reader to fill in, I'm interested to see what the showrunners fill some of those spaces with. Yeah, if they are going to continue with the ambiguity or if they're going to try to provide solid answers to some of those things. I'm curious to see that as well. And speaking of ambiguity, (laughs) do you think the governess fabricated these apparitions in her mind or do you think they were actually there? So I have a thought on this. And I'll start by saying I think Henry James is very careful to not say one way or the other. For me personally, coming at it from a modern perspective, a part of me is inclined to feel like it is fabricated. Because, and this is definitely applying a more modern lens on this, a lot of what she does and the way she thinks feels very reminiscent to me of the satanic panic of the 80s. Mm. Which, if you don't know what the satanic panic is, I won't go into a whole bunch of detail. There are some really great podcasts out there covering it. You should absolutely go listen because it was wild. (laughs) But basically, it was this period of time when people, I I believe in the U.S. and like parts of Canada, were wrapped up in this mass conspiracy that there were these satanic cabals doing horrendous things things, particularly to children, and particularly involving daycares. And a lot of what happened was parents would see a small detail that felt somewhat off with their kid. They would start pressing for more details. They would start projecting their ideas of what was happening onto their children, despite in some instances, their children saying, no, that's not what happened. The the parents just kind of projecting these wild stories that in some instances the kids would come up with and the parents would run with. Things would just get more and more ridiculous. And then when there wasn't evidence, then that was just evidence that someone else was swooping in and removing the evidence. So that was actually evidence in favor of all this happening. And looking at it from that perspective, Perspective, I see a lot of that in the governess and in the way that she gets very wrapped up in these stories. At one point, even compares herself to a heroine in a couple of gothic novels and sees herself as the hero, which is also a lot of what happened during the Satanic Panic was people thought that they were saving these children. So for me, it feels too similar to that to not be something that she has fabricated and worked herself up to. Yeah, it's like people are able to take ambiguous evidence and interpret it to mean the thing that they want to believe, which I think can be even more powerful when it's not something you want to happen, but rather something you're afraid of. Yeah. Fear is able to drive us psychologically in a lot of different ways and when you're in a space where you feel threatened everything starts looking like a snake to (laughs) your reptile brain right (laughs) yeah absolutely well and especially adding to this like the level of repression and 
beating around the bushness that that has to go on having this opportunity to express herself be the hero impress her seemingly disinterested employer and all who she things. might be in love with yeah unclear <laughs> yeah i think that's a really interesting interpretation, and I, I think that that makes as much sense as any other interpretation. <laughs> and, and in fact, I think that makes more sense than just being like, oh, well, she was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, because I think, for me, with a modern lens, to hear that explanation, which I think is likely a common explanation if you don't think that there were actually ghosts there, is, okay, well tell me more about that. You can't just say she had hysteria. We know more about mental illness now. And so if someone wants to make an argument that she's crazy, I kind of need more details to support that argument because crazy isn't a uh, technical term. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like crazy isn't necessarily enough to explain it. And just like in the satanic panic, like none of those people were quote unquote crazy they just got caught up in a in a social panic mm-hmm. which i think is also what we see here with mrs gross the governess gives her enough of a description and mrs gross had had enough of an impact made on her by real life things cuz i think that's the other thing is that it's coupled with enough real life concern to light the fuse then she gets wrapped up in it, and now they have these big, long, rambling conversations about the adventure they're going to have solving the mystery. So Yeah, I mean, it could even have come out of boredom. Yeah. <laughs> they're stuck at this manor. Their employer never calls. <laughs> <laughs> they just have two weirdly well-behaved kids to talk to. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, if they're not haunted, then explain that. What? Why are they so well-behaved? <laughs> I mean, by the end of it, it kind of sounds like the governess is terrorizing them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm kind of thinking through the different things that happen and realizing a lot of it could just be kids being kids and trying to go to the lake when they're not supposed to or trying to sneak out of bed or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, like it could just be kids acting out, especially since it's never super clear on how old the kids are. It doesn't seem like... And I don't mean to say that this is the only explanation, because like I said, I think he's very clear to leave things open. But for me personally, those were the connections that came to mind. And I kind of like that about ambiguity in literature, even though sometimes it's frustrating because I have a tendency to just want to know what the right answer is. The ambiguity is the space where the reader's imagination can bring something new to it. And I have a feeling that, uh, based on when this was written, it was not written about the satanic panic. (laughs) (laughs) I would assume not, unless he was predicting it. Yeah, there's a time machine involved. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's really cool that you can look at it from that perspective, and it does make perfect sense. And you wouldn't be able to do that without him being ambiguous about it, right? Yeah, yeah, without him fairly expertly laying the groundwork for you to interpret this however you might like. Mm -hmm. In the same way that the governess interprets these random things however she likes. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So, spark notes. Hmm. Really wanted there to be something (laughs) sexual going on. Yes. So the reading that I saw was that the affair between... Peter Quint and Miss Jessel was to various degrees made clear to the children. So then that would also give an explanation for what Miles got in trouble for at school, being that maybe he said something that he overheard or saw in this affair to other children. And so I guess that kind of makes sense to me, um, but it's not what I would have initially pulled. But then again, that cultural context is so important when so much is not stated. Yeah, because, yeah, now I'm remembering back to the way that Quint is described as being very forward. And I guess I'm realizing now that that could very well just be a very Victorian way of describing him as just kind of being open about whatever sex stuff he's up to (laughs) (laughs) 
And I do think it seems to make sense in light of the whatever it is that Miles said at school. For it to have been bad enough for him to be expelled, it would have had to have been something taboo enough that the headmaster wouldn't even write about it. And so I can kind of see the argument. Now that I'm thinking back to, like, elementary school or, like, how it's like you have the friend that says something that they're not supposed to say and then everybody kind of giggles about it and then says it to somebody else and then it happens until the teacher hears a kid say it and then it gets traced all the way back and now everyone's in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Do you do you have any other thoughts of any other ideas of why he might have been expelled? Not really because if he were being combative or getting into fights I don't see why the headmaster wouldn't talk about that unless there was maybe something he did that was just particularly vile. I don't know what that might have been. Well, and again, here's an unreliable narrator. Miles says that he said things to people he liked who then said the things to people they liked. Mm. And he seems to think that's why he was expelled. Yeah. And so now we're taking a child's word for it. But if that's true, then it would have had to be something taboo in nature. Yeah. Unless he knew something embarrassing about the headmaster and the headmaster <laughs> didn't want to write in a letter what was said because it was true. Uh-huh. <laughs> so really, he was blackmailing mm-hmm. the headmaster and that's why he was expelled. That's my new headcanon. Okay. I like it. <laughs> so, coming from the perspective that the ghosts are real... What do you feel is the nature of this haunting? I like the word apparition because that describes a being appearing to somebody else, but it doesn't necessarily say that something physically is happening. It also doesn't necessitate others being able to see mm. this phenomena. That's where I would I would kind of see this is... The governess is definitely seeing some figures, and apparently Ms. Gross and others are not, but the governess is seeing these figures. They're appearing to her. My interpretation is that the residents of Bly Manor are being haunted by this couple or what this couple represents, Miss Jessel and Peter Quint. I think Victorian readership might have interpreted that to mean that they are haunted by the sin or the impropriety of Peter Quint and Miss Jessel, that even when they are gone, their influence on the children remains and makes things difficult for everybody. Mm. Yeah, kind of is an interesting pairing with, with what you were saying about them being apparitions, where it may be unclear who's seeing them or to what extent they're there but they're very much there in the impact that they've had on Flora and Miles and that is something that's very clear and to some extent haunting particularly haunting the governess going again with an interpretation that there is some haunting going on do you think the children are haunted at all or are under some kind of spiritual influence because they are described as unnaturally well-behaved and they did come off as a little not childlike. That was definitely something I noticed and I don't know if it just had to do with the writing style of the time, but these children sound very old. (laughs) I think it's possible that the kids are also being haunted Especially given the fact that if we are to believe what the governess is seeing, that it seems that the ghosts are often looking for the children and watching the children. It seems that there is some influence by the ghosts on the children. Do you think the ghosts are why they are so well behaved or do you think there's something else 
in action. I mean, taking it at face value, they're so well behaved because they want to hide the fact that they're gallivanting about speaking with ghosts who are whispering sweet evils into their ears. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, I feel like the times when it is the most evident to me that there's something unreliable about this narrator is in her interactions with the kids because she has this whole narrative going on in her head about being a heroine and then she has to like work really hard to make their behavior work with her suspicions because like you said she has to argue that they are so well behaved to cover up the fact that they're influenced by these evil spirits which is like convoluted logic i feel like yeah or counterintuitive and then when you think about her interactions with the kids just at face value just those pieces alone she is like projecting so much onto these poor little kids <laughs> that are just like doing their thing to me it's kind of suspicious that even when she first meets flora she describes her as being so perfect and everything and, you know, kids are cute and everything, but they're not perfect. And that's, like, okay and normal. And for an adult to, like, immediately see that from a child and then kind of set that expectation for her feels very unhealthy to me. Yeah. She definitely does seem to have almost an obsession with the kids. It's almost like what she wants to see interferes with her being able to have an actual genuine interaction with them yeah in doing so she almost creates this weird set of expectations for the children and then yeah like projects then this vision of perfection or at least it becomes difficult to separate her projection on them and their actual behavior of are they actually these unnaturally perfect children or is she just liking to think that they are because she wants to be the heroine that swoops in and saves them from imperfection or it's almost like if they're too perfect she doesn't have anything to save them from so then she has to like fabricate this other thing that's going on I yeah don't know. if she is believing them to be haunted and then treating them that way then in in some ways that is kind of a haunting in and of itself yeah i think so it's definitely impacting their relationship and it casts a shadow over everything going on there for them yeah what about the ending I know. He, he just died. <laughs> just on the spot. Like, it seems unlikely that she would have smothered him, which would be the only way that it could have happened would have been that she smothered him. I think if you believe there's something supernatural going on, the other explanation then is that the ghost killed him or seeing the ghost killed him or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think that those are the two main interpretations that I can come up with. Yeah. Because he has that line where he says, Peter Quint, you devil. And it's not clear who he's saying you devil to. Because this is the first time that she has mentioned Peter Quint by name to him. So on the one hand, it could be that he's angry that she is bringing this up and doing this whole thing with them, or he could actually be seeing Peter Quint and has been haunted by him. And yeah, and then the ghost does something. Yeah. What are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm pretty dissatisfied with the ending in terms of not having more explanation at that point. It feels like... It's really intended to be this big exclamation mark at the end of the story. But for me, as a modern reader, it does feel like it's lacking a little bit to really make that strong stance. However, as we're talking about it, I think there could be something to be said about her smothering him as a metaphor for how she's been acting this entire time. That's a really good point. Uh, in fact, one of the things that the Sparknotes pointed out was was just how often she makes a point of mentioning 
how much she hugs them, which could just be a harmless thing that she mentions or could have been potentially foreshadowing. She obviously starts getting much more up in their business and starts smothering them metaphorically part of the way into the book and, yeah, for it to end in a literal smothering definitely seems metaphorical. That could be evidence in support of it's all in her head. It could represent how at this point she's just taken things so far outside of what is actually physically there that she's not able to see the harm that she's doing as a result of trying to protect them. Yeah, and that feels like it ties back around to the satanic panic where a lot of children were ultimately harmed by being forced to go through that process, especially after some of them even said, no, these things didn't happen. And the parents and the powers that be at the time said, no, this happened to you. You just haven't fully understood it or you just don't remember it right. We're going to help you remember it right. This feels very reminiscent of that again. And I, I think that could be a pretty timeless theme to caring so deeply about children and wanting to protect them. But there is a point where you stop doing good and start doing harm where the protection goes too far. I think that's especially true when it comes to idealizing a child as being perfect and representing perfect purity and innocence. There is a point, and of course that might vary based on the child's maturity and age and all that, but there is a point where children do have to learn about the realities of the world, and it's important to do that in a mindful and considerate way, but that protection can easily go overboard, I think. Yeah, especially because perfection is a lot to live up to. Yeah, even without all of this haunting stuff, just her initial impression that these children are perfect and beautiful doesn't seem all that healthy. Yeah. Yeah, it's an unfair expectation to have for these kids. Maybe the ambiguity about the ages is also intentional. Maybe they are older than the governess leads us to believe based on her behavior, and maybe she's infantilizing them somewhat. Well, we know Miles certainly feels that way because he wants to go back to school, but she insists that whatever schooling she could do is just as good or better than whatever he might be getting if she sent him to be at school with other children. I think she also says, though, that she recognizes that he has already reached an ability beyond what she can teach. Ah. So she's even of two minds about that, it seems like. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think that's that theme is a fairly universal contradiction. The desire to want to protect kids, and then also the reality of the fact that they grow up and have to go out into the world and face disappointment, among other things. Yeah. Hmm. So thinking about this in context with other haunted houses, I definitely think that there are themes of the domestic sphere and themes of mothers and children that frequently pop up in haunted houses because of their nature being inside of houses. As we discussed earlier, I think I'm developing a theory that this might be the beginning or a large influence on the creepy child uh, trope. <laughs> yeah, I'll be interested to see what we see if we come across any earlier instances of this but it certainly feels like this might be where, where a lot of that starts. As we talked about earlier, I think the unreliable narrator is kind of by necessity a main element to most haunted house stories, but we definitely also see that here. I will say, too, speaking of the narrator and influence on other works, there were more than a few times where I was reading The Governess whether in her interactions with Mrs. Gross or just in her internal monologue, that really reminded me of Nell in Haunting of Hill House. In kind of that same young woman who has 
we don't really know much about the governess's backstory, but who has potentially been sheltered herself and is just looking for connections. Because sometimes the way she gets into these excited conversations with Mrs. Gross feels very, I say reminiscent of, but only because I read Haunting of Hill House first. I guess technically Hill House would be reminiscent of this. But reminded me of the way that Nell sometimes talks to Theodora and the way she gets these fanciful plans going with Theodora. And so, yeah, I kind of wonder if there wasn't some inspiration there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely see that. And even though a role as a governess is somewhat respected, we still have an unmarried young woman, and that's creepy in and of itself. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if this would technically count as an epistolary novel, but it seems to fit that tradition. Um, An epistolary novel is one that the story is told through letters, correspondences, documents, that kind of thing. And in this case, Henry James has framed it within this larger story. I think specifically what is great about that for these scary stories is that puts you inside of the world because it's a world within a world or a a letter within a world that makes it feel more real. Like a letter or a document is something that is real and tangible and exists. And if you're already inside of that character's world, then it feels like, quote unquote, real evidence. In that way, having primary documents of somebody giving their testimony of what happened or somebody writing a letter that puts us in the character's world and then makes us feel like these are real documents that really existed. And that, to me, reminds me of the same feel as an urban legend, where you feel like it's real because someone said, oh, this happened to my sister's friend's aunt or whatever. Knowing that it happened to someone vaguely related to us makes us feel like it's real or makes it feel more believable. Yeah. Like, we're put in the mindset of we are at this Christmas party sitting down for a fun, spooky tale And this guy's like, I've got one. Let me go. Well, yeah, the fact that he can come and be like, because they ask, like, if he wrote this, and he's like, no, I didn't write this. The governess did. So it gives it this provenance of, like, look at this. She wrote it. It's real. exactly. And that's a really good point, that, like, having the story inside the story be something so tangible really draws you in. And I think with horror... What we are often looking for is something that is slightly removed, but it feels like it could be real. Like it feels like it could happen to us. Yeah. (laughs) On a scale from one to five, how spooky is Turn of the Screw? Uh, I feel like I should say it's really spooky, but honestly, like... A two? Yeah, I'm probably going to give it the same. I might have found it spookier if I could understand what was happening. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But the problem was that she would start going on about how terrible a thing was that happened for paragraphs before we find out what the thing was that happened. And by then it's killed the suspense for me. A lot of this is probably just me coming at it with my own personal likes and dislikes and that this probably just isn't the kind of thing that I like, but it didn't come across as all that spooky. (laughs) Well, for me, it's often harder for books to be as scary as movies. I think we've talked about this before, and that's just because books don't have the benefit of being able to overwhelm my senses with jump scares and loud sounds. (laughs) The one moment that moved this from a one to a two for me was on my second reading when I was really able to slow down and take it in. The apparition of the old governess sitting at the current governess's desk writing, that was like genuinely disturbing to me because if that had been the only thing that happened, I mean, that would be really scary. You're in this big empty house just you and these little kids, and you're the adult in charge. (laughs) And 
you go to your desk and the person who had your job before you is sitting at your desk writing and you know this person is dead under mysterious circumstances. That's pretty scary. But I agree, because of the way it was written and because apparitions that just appear kind of feel like run-of-the-mill horror stuff at this point. Yeah. Just didn't quite get me. On a scale of one to five, how haunted is the turn of the screw? Well, rating it in line with my own theories about the story, I'm probably going to have to give it a two for haunted as well. I'll give it above a one because I think you could say that there is, to some extent, some haunting going on in the way that she treats the children and in the experiences the children have had, but coming at it with my own pet theories, (laughs) uh, I'd have to give it a two. Thinking about everything we've talked about, I'm actually gonna give it a four because the story itself taken at face value that there is a woman and there are these apparitions yeah that was probably scary and it sounds like the house is mildly haunted (laughs) i mean compared to some of the other houses that we're about to jump into Mm -hmm. but actually thinking about a governess who becomes so paranoid and caught up in her own delusions that she strangles a child. That's pretty haunted to me. That's a good point. If the house wasn't haunted, it is now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think for me also, apparitions are scary, but I think what really gives them power is the fear that they create and how that can then control somebody. Or you're so afraid you're going to see the thing again that you see the thing again. Hmm. I think that's a a good point. I think that's an interesting way of approaching that. Often, for me, what is scarier than apparitions is what our own minds have the ability to create for us, either in terms of fear or in terms of separation from reality. And so introducing that piece to it makes it more haunting to me. All right. So on a scale of one to five, how spousy is it? Yeah, I got to give this one like a two because there's definitely some relationships None of them are spouses, though. But even beyond that, I always want to fall back on textual proof. And (laughs) we have a lot of, like, whispers and rumors and implications. But we don't even know that she's in love with her employer. We don't know the nature of the relationship between Quint and Jessel. So I'm only giving it a two. Yeah, I, I might even go so far as to give it a one. There's... There are no spouses. There are people who maybe love each other, but none of them become spouses. So. Oh, are you splitting hairs about I am... matrimony? <laughs> you could sort of say that Jessel and Quint act as spouses, especially in death. If they are working together to haunt this place, you might say that they're doing so as like a, a, a spousal team. But outside of that, yeah, like you said, the governess doesn't really have any real relationship with her employer. There's a Mrs. Gross, which maybe there is or was a Mr. Gross, but we don't know. So yeah, a two. Well, that about does it for our show. Thank you for joining us as we explored the turn of the screw. We will be taking a little winter break, so the next episode will be January 6th, 2022. If you're new to Haunted Spouse, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-spook review. Reviews help us get our show out there and help listeners find the podcast. So if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, you can suggest a rating category that we will use in an upcoming episode. If you have comments, topic suggestions, or just want to say hi... 
send us an email at hauntedspousepod at gmail.com. You can find us on social media at Haunted Spouses. Thanks for listening. And remember... But it was a comfort that there could be no uneasiness in a connection with anything so beatific as the radiant image of my little girl, the vision of whose angelic beauty had probably more than anything else to do with the restlessness that, before morning, made me several times rise and wander about my room to take in the whole picture and prospect, to watch, from my open window, the faint summer dawn, to look at such portions of the rest of the house as I could catch, and to listen, while... In the fading dusk, the first birds began to twitter, for the possible recurrence of a sound or two, less natural and not without, but within, that I had fancied I heard. I'm trying to figure out... I keep asking you questions because I don't understand this book. Ah. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> you're in luck. Neither do I.